Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 35. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School. Each episode on Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them, how did they get in the classroom? What are they currently working on? And what are their hopes for in the future? This episode, I sit down with Diana Ciliazar-Shields. Diana is a biology teacher and science department chair at Barrington High School in Barrington, Rhode Island. Uh, she currently teaches AP Biology. Diana is also the high school science fair coordinator. Diana is involved in a variety of leadership roles that focus on deeper learning and research-based science practices, including the BSCS NABT Leadership Academy. Diana is a regular presenter at state and national conferences and has been named the Outstanding Biology Teacher for the state of Rhode Island. In 2017, she was the District Teacher of the Year uh, in Barrington. And Diana earned her PhD in education from the University of Rhode Island. You can follow Diana on Twitter at ShieldsDSVA. Welcome, Diana. Hi, good morning. How are you? Good morning. We were like just together uh, a week ago. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was a great week. It was a great week. Yeah, it seemed... Yeah, it seems like it was uh, more recent than just a week ago. Um, yeah. Yeah, like it was the, the this past week, I don't know what yours was like, but I felt like it was a fire hose getting back to school um, after going to uh, NABT. Um, I was at school like late every night um, doing tons and tons of work, but uh, people are asking me how it was and I was like, I'm tired, but I'm like really energized. Um, <laughs> yeah, I agree. I, I had the same feeling. I mean, it was, it was hectic to come back to, you know, to things that we have to do as teachers uh, uh, schedule, but it was so invigorating. It was so, um, it, there was definitely a lot of excitement and energy that you get from these conferences, uh, especially in ABT, uh, just to be around colleagues who are just as passionate as you are, you know, with uh, really kids about science, the cool stuff about science. Yeah, and you, uh, you and I got to meet face to face for the first time in St. Louis. Even though we probably are like an hour drive apart right now. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, right. <laughs> I say that's like that's like uh, Valerie May. The fa- first time I met Valerie May was face to face was in Los Angeles. Um, <laughs> And she's like, you know, just as far away as you are. Um, And then the second time I was face face with her, it was in Florida. Um, (laughs) Never local, right? Yeah, never local. So I met Valerie. Yeah, the first time I met Valerie, it was in uh, Rhode Island. It was at the Rhode Island um, teacher conference. Um, I didn't know who she was, and I was presenting. Uh, She was part of the audience, Mm -hmm. and uh, we were both in the same pro, the BSES. Mm Uh, and I was talking to the teachers there um, about my experience with BSES, um, and, and she was uh, she was there, um, and someone asked me a question, and I was kind of like, I'm not really sure, and so she sort of piped in and you know provided some information. I was like, oh my god, had I known that, I probably would have been a little nervous, but um, <laughs> it was awesome to have, and that's really that was my first interaction with her. I've you know, and since then, uh, we. We sort of touch base uh, at different conferences and uh, events, but it, it's pretty neat. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it is nice to know. Yeah. It's nice to have the community. Um, it's sometimes you go to these national conferences. I felt like I spent the whole, uh, the whole weekend, uh, with, uh, Ohio people. Um, <laughs> cause I spent a lot of time with Chris Monsoor and, uh, and John Darko and, uh, and, uh, Kevin English. In fact, I think I had like almost every meal I had in St. Louis with, uh, with John and yeah. Kevin. Um, it was great. And, it, yeah. it, but it is funny that you spend these times with connections all over the country and then you come back to your own home, but it is good when you've got people who are a little bit closer, um, you know, where you can run into them. I think Valerie's in, um, at uh, the Connecticut State uh, Teachers Conference this weekend right. um, as we're recording this. And I'm pretty sure Paul Anderson's there for this one. So, Yes, I saw that. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he's too. Yeah. So that's a, it's a cool, it's a cool weekend. They're getting back to back professional development weekend. So. Uh, yes, <laughs> that's good stuff. All right, uh, so let's get into the first question. I like to ask everybody: uh, How did you become a science teacher? What led you into the classroom? You know, I, I initially, like a lot of people, I was a science major. I was pre med. Mm-hmm. I started Rhode Island College, and and you know, enjoyed science. Um, I I think back into like my life, you know, I think I was always destined to be a teacher. I just didn't know it. <laughs> um, you know, so if I go back to like my high school years, the people who were, um, who really were important to me were some of my science teachers. Um, and so my English, uh, the English teachers and just people that I really admire were teachers. Um, and, um, and so when I started, you know, college, um, I knew that my passion was science. So I, you know, I, I decided to venture into, into that area. I met a professor um, there. I think it was probably my second year uh, of undergrad work, um, Dr. Charles Owens. Big guy, microbiology guy, fell in love with microbiology, fell in love with like his passion for research and his passion for work. Um, and he offered me an opportunity to sort of be, to, to be his TA. Mm-hmm. Um, and so through that, uh, you know, sort of opportunity, um, I started to tutor biology students, uh, nursing students, students who sometimes struggled um, with, with biology. Um, and I myself, um, coming from an inner city school, um, really wasn't always prepared enough um, in terms of like having you know, exposure to certain opportunities. Um, and so I had struggled in chemistry um, and so I kind of felt like that I knew how to help people, you know. Um, and so it was through tutoring and, and Dr. Owens, he, he then gave me the opportunity to, you know, help him in the classroom to teach for his microbiology class. And it was one of those things where I was like, I think I really like this. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like seeing uh, the results when people get it. You know, I, I like seeing I, I, it feels good when um when students um finally become you know finally see it you know the the process and really become excited about the wonder the why the you know learning more component and so i finished my four years of undergrad and then it was really at the last moment that i decided to to go into teaching and so i met another professor at rhode island college and um i had I sort of talked to him about, you know, what I was thinking. And this was Paul Tiscus. Uh, these are really good, um, passionate people, um, really uh, about learning and about science. And he, um, and so I applied uh, for like a master's in teaching. 
after that that I, um, uh, you know, I was certified, looked for a job. Um, I ended up applying just by chance to Barrington uh, High School. Um, I didn't even know uh, really where Barrington High School was, uh, you know, I, even though I'm a Rhode Islander, you know, Rhode Islander state, sort of in their little area. Um, and so I, um, I just applied by chance. I didn't think um, that I would even um, get an interview because it was sort of like a last minute application. Um, and um, I was interviewed, hired by John Gray. And I've been in Barrington High School ever since <laughs> um, my first job. That's been my, and I always say I would never leave teaching. Um, it really won't be for anywhere to teach somewhere else. It'll be to probably pursue something different. <laughs> um, but I just, I'm, I, that's my home. Yeah. That's my, uh, my school. So that's really how, how I got into teaching. Yeah, I was going to say we have a very similar st- start, except for the fact that I um, did not stay at the school I first got hired at. Um, <laughs> but your description is, is has a, there's a remarkable parallel, I feel like, you know, um, for, for me, like your story is like, I'm just like nodding along with, yep, I know, you know, my, my names are different names, uh, but, uh, but yeah. I, have, I, feel, I have very, a lot of similarity in that pathway that you talked about. Um, so did you, so you went right into an education program and then you, you got this at the, at, at Barrington. And so you've been there for a long time, but you've, you've continued this. I mean, when I, when I think of you and I think of, you know, you on social media or talking to you face to face at the conference or whatever, um, you know, I think the first time your name came across, uh, where I saw your name, um, you were presenting somewhere with Chi Klein. Um, and so you were, yeah, so I had, um, and I saw your name next to cheese and I remember cause I was looking for what, what she was presenting and, um, and I saw that you were presenting with her and I was like, oh, okay. Oh, she's from Rhode Island. That's really close. I should, I should figure out who she is. Um, you know, like, cause she's in the area and, uh, but you, I assume you two got to know each other through the BSCS, BSCS, uh, NABT leadership Academy. So how did you get involved with that, uh, that group, um, the leadership Academy? What was your... Sort of, I guess, how did you professionally grow to get to that group? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I feel like I've, I've always been, a, a, you know, at the right place at the right time kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was um, my this, the assistant superintendent from uh, Barrington High School often sends out emails to to the staff. Um, and this came across my feed, you know, like there's this program, you know, if you'd like to apply kind of thing. And I really did. I thought about it at first. And then I was like, oh, I'll, I'll apply. I was literally, I applied to that program. I want to say it was probably like 10, 11 o'clock at night. I finally said, okay, I'm, you know what? I'm going to send it out. Um, and um, I, I really, again, didn't, I knew when I read the description of the program that I, those were my goals, right? I knew that I wanted, I'm a, you know, I want to always be a reflective learner, teacher, um, I knew that I, I wanted to focus on um, concepts uh, regarding around deeper learning and formative assessment. I knew that I wanted to be around like-minded people who who were passionate about what they do. Uh, and that was sort of like the descriptor of, of the program. And so I was like, this sounds really cool. Um, and so I applied and I had um, a friend of mine, uh, this uh, narrative that you have to that you had to fill out. Uh, about why you wanted to be part of the program. Um, and um, I, I sort of, you know, wrote about my passion. I had a friend of mine look at it and she was like, oh, this is, you know, this is good. You know, and then 
I heard from BSES that I was one of the participants. Um, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll go to Colorado. That's awesome. You know, <laughs> just look at a different part of the country. I got there and really to be in a room of a lot of individuals who really aim to always be at, at their best for the purpose of making the world better and, and being the best teacher they can for their students was really life-changing. I mean, I, I will say that hands down that that program, BSES uh, program has been a life-changing program for me and able to really collaborate with lots of people. Uh, and I do that in my own district, but it, it's just different to be able to collaborate with people from around the country who have different perspectives and look at education and science education under different lenses. Yeah. And when you say that, I was, we were talking about, um, I was out, I was out late last night, you know, as us wild teachers do, um, supervising high school students at my high school (laughs) (laughs) until nine o'clock at night. Um, and, uh, but I was with, you know, a couple of my colleagues who I work with every day. And I think the, the statement that you make is, is so true about even when you collaborate in your building, the connections you make outside your building, they enrich those conversations. So yes. you, you don't get in this like echo chamber. So like sometimes you get, you know, and I work with some some great colleagues and we get some good ideas, mm-hmm. but it's just our ideas. And, you know, particularly for me, I work with two other people and I've been working with them for years and years and years. And yes, we have a right. points of agreement and we have some slight differences, but having those connections outside shines light onto aspects that you're not getting to in the conversations you get to in your own building. Um, so yeah, it's, it's hugely important to have that, that outside perspective people yeah. bringing in. So I'm, I'm curious cause, um, you know, I admit we had talked in, um, I got to watch you present at, um, NABT, which was great. Um, and I, um, it's funny, like, yeah, thank it, you for- <laughs> yeah, the, I got nervous when I saw you, <laughs> I, was like, well, I wasn't, I shouldn't have been the one that made you nervous, uh, in that room. uh, like, I think there were there was, there was at least one person who had a bunch more cachet in that room than me. In fact, I can think of a few that were sitting in the back that I wasn't the one that should have made you nervous. Um, yeah. But uh, to me, the the thing that really struck me, in, sp- in spite of all of the other aspects, and there were so many good things um, from that program, uh, you know, the way you talked about the the I can statements um, with with your students and and <clears throat> checking in with them, um, you know, before you start an activity, in the middle of the activity, and after the activity, and the framing. Um, it's, a, it's per, for me, this is one of those personal struggles I've had, particularly in AP, is making the learning objectives for AP student friendly, because um, I think that the College Board, um, the College Board language, while I can I can translate it, when my students pick up the you know the essential knowledge or the enduring understandings or or those things for AP um, I can't just take those and drop them in you make those my student learning objectives um, you need to do some translating of them and it's something I always struggle with that idea of you know what is student friendly language for learning objectives um, and so the I can statements were really like it's the that's the thing that's actually stuck with me the most in this last week as I've been looking at mm-hmm. you know the the practice in my classroom and that's an area of need for me. That's a, it's a weakness of mine is that specific communication piece with that specific group. Um, and you put that through. So um, that was really you know great for me. But I'm curious what kind of practices shifted, you know, and I'm sure there's a million things. So it could be anything. But what are some of the things that make your classroom different today than before you went off to the BSCS um, uh, Leadership Academy? And so although I hate to admit it, it was the CFGs. Oh, yeah. 
um, the conceptual flow graphics. <laughs> I mean, that you've been, you were part of the regional uh, teacher academy as well. And so you know that that is the piece that was probably the most um, sort of pulling out your hair and trying to organize your thinking about an entire unit or concept or, you know, a group of ideas. Um, but it was really looking at, um, at really the purpose, being purposeful and the idea of really being able to uh, make it clear to the, to the students the type of story that you're trying to tell that I, I think sort of opened my eyes to, wow, I really can't talk about, you know, um, cellular respiration, let's say, on its own. I need to be able to connect, make the connections for them so that they can see and, and sort of take them with me so that they can see what the storyline looks like. Um, and, and that really is impactful and different. And I think the big difference um, in terms of the being part of the uh, Leadership Academy was that we were forced, or uh, the members of this Leadership Academy were, were really um, allowed to sort of look at instruction from the lens of the learner. Mm-hmm. And when I placed myself in that particular uh, you know, framework, I was able to see the things that I struggled with, when I struggled, and how I struggled, and, I was, and it really made me think, and it made me allow, it allowed me to be a little bit more reflective. Um, and so, I, I, that I think was the piece that sort of when I came home that you know after that summer, the first summer when uh, I was introduced to CFGs, um, I, I really sat down and thought about you know okay, so what am I doing? Am I am I really? being purposeful? Am I creating that storyline for my students? Is it visible to them? Mm-hmm. Um, some cha- I made some changes that were significant there. Uh, and the ICANN statements is, is really an example of one. Um, you brought up the point that, you know, um, it's important to make it into student-friendly language, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have that. And so I started listening to them, listening to the students. Uh, and actually, even this year, I had one of my students say to me, um, uh, Ms. Lazar, I'm looking at those ICANN statements. I did everything about, you know, first, the second, and the third ICANN statement, but I still didn't really get to, like, exactly what was needed in order to, you know, to determine whether I'm proficient or not, you know, in those particular concepts. And so I said to her, I said, well, let's, for this next unit, and actually this reminds me of that, because I said to her, for the next unit, Let's sit down and think about the ICANN statements and let's let's you and I sort of um, if we need to break them down further, let's let's do that. Um, and so it's really been I, I, it's not like a one year change. <laughs> it's, on the, it's sort of like um, it's taken me about three to four years to really get to where I am today with regards to uh, making things really a little bit more uh, clearer for students and with more purpose. Yeah, I was, um, as you were talking there, my dog barreled in on me. Um, <laughs> my little puppy. I was like, something's Yeah, yeah. Something's that's, that's what that little, that's the little rattling is, uh, is, uh, is Penny, my little dog. Uh, <laughs> but as, uh, as you were saying that, I was thinking about the, um, the communication that goes back and forth to students. And another big thing that comes out of the Leadership Academy is this concept of metacognition. You know, um, students being able to say, yes, I understand this. No, I don't understand this. And, um, I knew it at the time, but it has become even clearer as I've started to work through some of those things that if the objectives are not in student-friendly language, 
the building of those metacognition skills is nearly impossible um, because they, first of all, they're, they, they are not, you know, and I'm talking about my, right. ni- my ninth graders to start. When a kid comes in at ninth grade, they have very little metacognition. And I think that's fairly developmentally appropriate. Like a lot of 14 year olds um, are <laughs> the amount of 14 year olds, the amount the 14 year olds don't know is, is, is grand. Um, it's kind of the joy. of yes. <laughs> It's the, it's the joy of the 14 year old. Uh, but in order for them to like start to engage in the process of being asked, how well do you know this? It has to be in a, a transparent language for them. Uh, and, and that's been enlightening for me. And then as right. they grow forward through high school, if you haven't been doing with that them that with them with freshmen and other people aren't doing with them, they don't really grow that much. And so when you get to juniors and seniors, so my juniors and seniors, um, they're kind of all over the map in terms of their ability to reflect on what they know and what they don't know. They're really good if you give them a list of things they need to tell you back on a test. They're really good at that. But evaluating right. whether or not they deeply understand those statements is is a challenge for them. Um, and it's something that um, we have to teach them. Um, and and if the language is opaque to right. them, there's no way they're going to get there. So um, that's it's been a fascinating uh, that's been a fascinating journey yeah. for me. Yeah, and I mean one of the things that I um, uh, at the conference uh, in St. Louis was an example of a reflective piece from a student. Yeah. Um, and because it it also allows them, and I wanted to show that so that people could see nowhere in that document did it say. Uh, they call me Mrs. S or Mrs. Celia R. Shields, but nowhere in that document did it say Celia R. Shields uh, helped me learn. It really, it, it really talked about in this, but in a lot of them, and I've noticed that as I am reflective in terms of what I read in their in their reflection pieces after an assessment, always lists the the resources that helped them get to where they where they are now in terms of their understanding of a concept. And so you had, you know, um, the reading, the practice, the, um, you know, repetition of, of their own when they needed that extra help, you know, what resource they, they used to, to get to where they need to, uh, to get to. And so to me, that's, that's teaching them the skills uh, so that they know, and it shows me that it's working, that, you know, that they know what they know and what they don't know. Yeah. And it gives them really the ability to sort of advocate for themselves. And um, like this past week, one of my students says, can we, can you uh, on Monday, you know, talk about A, B, and C, uh, about, about um, we're doing thermodynamics. So it's, you know, something that's difficult for them. But she was able to point out the pieces that she needed help on. You know, it wasn't, I don't understand is I don't understand this specific part about this specific problem, you know, and it's, it's kind of cool to see, um, to see students sort of get there. But uh, I'm lucky in, in that my district um, has uh, been focused about deeper around deeper learning and, you know, um, method, you know, different methodologies to help students sort of become that reflective um, learner. Um, and so I am getting them more prepared about, you know, in terms of um, identifying um, how they learn um, than if we hadn't had those those components um, sort of uh, in our district. 
Yeah, you opened up the 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 piece. We're talking about the reflection piece, which which reminds me about the way you grade, which is you are um, another one of our standards based grade. Uh, advocates. And um, for my conversations with people about standards-based grades, it sort of means a little something different with everybody. I think there's an underlying philosophy, but what uh, what does the standards-based grades uh, look like in your classroom? Um, You mentioned reflection, but what are, how how do you come up with your grading scheme for for your students? Right. So in our district, we don't have standards-based grading. Mm -hmm. We have uh, a traditional grading system. Um, and so I always have to, um, anything that I do in my classroom, that it's going to be part of their grade. I always have to make sure that it's, you know, that it's converted into our traditional system. Um, and so it, it, so I don't, I, I don't feel that I'm sort of ahead of the curve in terms of the standards based, based grading component. Um, but the little things that I do is, um, we do, um, you know, they know the the uh, learning objectives that, that are aligned to their assessment. So ahead of time, they know that if they have a checklist, um, if I know this particular, um, I can statement or a learning objective, I know that I'm going to be okay, um, you know, in the assessment component. Um, and then uh, what I've been doing this year is I've been identifying in their assessments where they don't, they, they're not positioned, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I take those and, and I sort of been going around in, in little groups. Um, I've been grouping my students in ways so that I can really help them to um, weakness and then try to provide the, the supplemental um, material or the supplemental support to get them to, to the proficiency component of that. Um, but it's tricky um, to, you know, sort of have one mindset and then have to uh, switch it to a, a more traditional, um, you know, system. So are the students? Um, but I know that they're. Yeah. I was going to say, so are the students involved in, in the in like making a, a argument at the end of the quarter of these are the standards I met, or is this a fuzzy system that you're sort of working through back and forth with the kids? Yeah, it's a fussy system, I would say, <laughs> at this point. Um, I see, like, some of my colleagues, uh, again, through this community, I think have a, a really uh, very systematic, organized system. Um, I'm not there uh, yet uh, when it comes to the, the standards-based uh, grading uh, component. So they're getting, are students getting grades on tests and that is part of their average, but their assessments themselves are standards-based so that they can get the... They can get feedback and support on that. Is there some uh, redemption if I, let's say, I struggle on a test um, and I, I'm not proficient on these this handful of uh, learning objectives, then I go and do the supplemental work. Is there a degree, degree of redemption towards those standards that helps my grade when it gets put into the report yes. card? Okay. Yes. So what we have, um, and there are three of us who teach AP Biology and all three of us uh, do the same um, the same methodology, but basically what it is, is uh, students uh, do not perform well in certain questions or get the questions wrong. They're able to do what we, what we basically do is test corrections. Mm-hmm. And in test corrections, comes in, during test corrections, they're expected to write down uh, why their answer was in- incorrect. Uh, so they, and they do it in groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then why, and then have to explain the correct answer, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they remember. And then what I do is in future tests, um, 
I sometimes will place a question from an earlier uh, unit. Yeah. Test. It was interesting in this last test, there was an evolution question that came in from unit one. Uh, and one of the students um, talking about it, and they were like, yeah, it was, it's not the exact same question, it's the exact same concept. Mm -hmm. But one of the students said to their conversation, they were like, Oh, that's something that we covered uh, earlier. So look, that that's really good. That um, I think you don't want to say like sixty-four or seventy-four percent of the students had it correct. So when I correct uh, any type of multiple choice question, mm -hmm. um, I look at the percentage of students who correct question correct or got it incorrect. Uh, and based on that, if it's a question that if it's a topic that we've talked about earlier and we you know, remedied in terms of, uh, you know, I'm not there yet, but I, I'm getting there, mm -hmm. right? Then the student can recognize. And it was cool. I, I, that wasn't something that I um, I thought was happening. I didn't think that they realized, um, you know, that there was material from earlier in the year and that track of how they were doing, you know, with mm -hmm. particular topics in terms of their mastery. And so to see that, to hear that conversation, was really neat, you know, because it, it showed me that, yeah, there are, I can see that they're really keeping track in terms of what their understanding is on the I can statements as a tracking mechanism for themselves as a learner in my biology course. Yeah, that's, it's very fascinating. You've said a, f a few different things that sort of pinged me both good and bad. So I, I do a test correction um, system as I, as well. Um, but one of my own sort of personal criticisms about historical teaching um, is that we teach units. And now that we've gone to standards-based grades, I now set the set of standards for this unit, but I feel like I sort mm -hmm. of, I'm sort of i sort of boxing their learning as opposed to mm -hmm. it viewing like a cascade and building forward. And since I've moved to the test corrections and improved the standards, um, I tell the kids that I could call back to previous units, but I haven't actually done it yet. And so I'm now curious about... Um, I'm just with joy. None of my students will ever listen to my podcast, so that's great. Because um, if and if they did listen, there's no way they're getting 30 minutes into it because they'd be bored to tears before <laughs> they got to here. But um, I imagine the idea of going back and looking that, and I use uh, I use ZipGrade as my uh, as my grading system, so I can get those percentages as well. Um, I yeah. want to go back and look at those first couple of units and say, all right, what of the what are these questions that we asked earlier that are concepts that make good connections to the concepts that we're talking about in a given unit, and and how could I make an integration? there um, it's not something that I've done particularly yet but um, I can see specifically going forward and it's, especially as we get into the second half of the year and we get closer to the AP um, that will be really fascinating or even as we get a little closer to the mid-year um, that'll be a that's an interesting thing to do and then the question is how to effectively communicate that expectation I think I actually already communicated that expectation I just don't necessarily um, I'm not as mindful about how to make that integration on the assessments themselves. Um, right. So yeah, that'll, that's a, it's a fascinating thing to think about in terms of how to do test corrections and then how to um, reward, or if you think about it this way, how to um, check yourself for the effectiveness of this strategy that you're implementing. Um, I think the goal of it and the reason you do it would be to have students correct their misconceptions you know, re reconfigure their their thoughts about um, the concepts and the the objectives that they've done, and if they are are actually making a correction, that correction should be a more um, a more salient point the next time they see a question like that. But if you don't then assess right. it, then how do you know? So, 
Yeah, that's great. Right, right. And I mean, that's something new that I, I would say that's something that I'm doing this year. Um, I don't think I was as good at it in, in the past, uh, but it's something that um, just through having conversations like the one we're having, mm-hmm. you know, with different educators, um, I really sat down and thought about it. I'm like, if I'm not, then rechecking, then, you know, how do I know that what they know? How do I know that they didn't, you know, after the test corrections, um, get to where they needed to, to get to. Yeah. Um, and so it, it is something that I'm working on this year, uh, a little bit more strategically than in the past. Yeah. I think the answer is we do that because we'd give a mid-year or we'd give a, a final, we would give them mm-hmm. another bite of that apple later on. But if you give it at the final or the, they get it at the AP, uh, you haven't given right. them that, that it's not a journey. It's a like, all right, we corrected this one thing. Now hold that stance <laughs> until the test um, yeah, exactly. and then get, and then just don't forget how to stand the right way or, you know, that concept. So it is a much, I think it's a much more effective st- uh, strategy educationally to give them another opportunity. And I think both to build confidence in that, yes, I am actually building yeah. my concepts or just because I got this question wrong early doesn't mean that I didn't learn or can't learn that concept. And so giving them mm-hmm. some constructive feedback through another assessment question um, is a really is really interesting. Uh, right. It's an interesting strategy. It's definitely something I'm going to have to make a note for uh, as I as I work work forward in the year. Um, I'm going to be reshaping some tests coming up. So, yeah, I actually think after think after we get through Thanksgiving, uh, <laughs> I think that long weekend, you know, that that Friday, Saturday, Sunday I, on my agenda is um, is item analysis of one of my tests. And um so maybe I will uh, maybe I'll incorporate some of that into into some of that work in this next week. So yeah, that, that's great. And show it to them. Show, yeah. show them the um, the item analysis. Yeah. Um, it, it it really is interesting to watch their reaction when they they look at question by question. And it wasn't anything formal. I just like sort of you know put it up there very quickly, and they you know like they were able to then judge uh, in terms of um, you know oh okay. So if only 5% of the class got this concept, that means that, you know, we need to do more. Yeah. And that tells me the same. Um, but it was in, it's definitely interesting when they when you get their feedback. Well, I didn't get this because mm-hmm. and I think it helps to sort of um, then craft the type of navigation that you'll need to take in order to get them to um, to a deeper understanding. Yeah, that's that's great. All right. So. Um... Let's shift out of our, our sort of local, I mean, our individual school. And um, and you're right, my neighbor, you're Rhode Island, and I have no idea what's going on in Rhode Island science standards. <laughs> and yeah. This is one of those things that sort of pops up when we go to these national conferences. Like, we know, we all know that this NGSS stuff is out there, and we all know that our own individual state standards are changing. And then you have conversations with people, and you're like, all right, so what are you dealing with in your home state? So what are you dealing with in your home state? What's going on with the science standards in, in Rhode Island? Are they becoming NGSS or NGSS-like? Or what's going on? So Rhode Island was one of the initial states that adopted the, NG, the uh, NGSS um, standards. Um, it's in, in this state, uh, even though it's a tiny state, I think it's, uh, it differs from school or district to district where they are in their journey to implementing those standards. Currently, um, Simone Palmer is the, um, the science uh, point person in the state of Rhode Island here. And um, I noticed that she has been um, doing a lot of work around trying to get different districts to sort of look at these standards together 
because of there's a push right now in the state to create, and they do have it on their website, um, create exemplars of what a particular standard looks like. Um, I missed actually one of the working sessions uh, from the state uh, because I was attending um, NABT this year, but uh, they are they're basically getting the, trying to sort of cast the voice of teachers from around the state uh, to come up with these sort of examples of um, how uh, NGSS could be in science practices could be implemented uh, in in the different districts. So um, I, there's been a lot of work done. I think um, what they're doing uh, at the state level now is trying to communicate that work so that it gets into every classroom, every district, every classroom, and every student benefits from it. Um, but there's, I mean. It, there is definitely a difference uh, in terms of where districts are um, in, in the implementation of those standards. Uh, we have in our district uh, implemented the NGSS in our current, in the different uh, science curricula, um, but we continue to work towards, you know, uh, making improvements in that. Yeah. So do you have an assessment that drives at, you know, a particular grade or across grades? Do you guys have a state test for this or is there um, there's some other metrics to measure how students or teachers are adopting standards? Right. So we have what is called the NECAP mm -hmm. assessment, which is taken at grade 11. Okay. Um, and, and again, that's something that the state, I, I you know, is working, uh, currently working in uh, sort of aligning better to, to NGSS. Um, I think that that's something that continues to be um, a work in progress for them. But um, the alignment is not is not right now. Um, uh, the, it's not as well. Like, the exam is not as well aligned to NGSS as it could be for for the state assessment. Okay, and is that a subject specific, or is it sort of across sciences that that exact? It's, it it's, it's an exam eleventh grade. Uh, and it covers bio, you know, biology, physical science, so ke uh, chemistry and physics. Okay, yeah, mm -hmm. it's a, that's one of those fascinating things about the different states. You know, like in New York, you've got your regents, where you've got like every year right. at the end of the year they take it. In Massachusetts, it's it's an interesting system. Most students take biology, but you take whatever high school class you're taking that has an exam, you take that. So, for example, in my school. If you're an honors bio and you're uh, a freshman, you take the biology state test, the MCAS. And if you are right. a freshman who takes earth science, we do not have an earth science assessment. So you will oh, take okay. you will take biology as a sophomore. If you come in from out of district, let's say you took biology in Rhode Island and then you moved to Massachusetts and now you're a sophomore and you're taking chemistry, there is a chemistry MCAS. If you, wow. if you come in and you're a senior and you're in a physics course, there is a physics MCAS. Uh, so there's it's a very fascinating you know, strategy. So for us, it means that most students in the state take the biology one. I think they it's something like... That was going to be my question. Yeah, it's something like... It, it's at least... Ten, I think it's 10 times as many biology tests as all of the other tests combined in our state. Um, because most either take it as a freshman or as a sophomore. Um, if you take a physical science course as a freshman, um, it's sort of up to the district to sort of claim whether or not that physical course 
physical science course connects. And if the district says no, it's a broad introduction of physical science. We do not address an, enough of the standards for the students to take the chemistry or the physics. Or there's also like a, a technology uh, it's a technology and engineering assessment. So there's some there's some okay. there's some uh, schools where they take the physical science, but they align their curriculum with the with that um, with that particular set of standards. And I know a couple of districts where they take that as their freshman course because they've aligned their physical science courses with the learning objectives for that. So and then all of this changes after this year. So who knows what's going to happen? Because we're going to get a new assessment because we've adopted oh. NGSS like standards. And even though we've adopted them, there's sort of this um, sunsetting of the old standard assessment. And it's going to look something like the new standards. The new standards are going to be okay. assessed in some way <laughs> starting next year. So is it still going to be a ninth, 10th grade, like a ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade? Or is it going to be sort of like what we have in Rhode Island where it, it takes an assessment of of the different content areas? Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but I think from everything I've seen, it, I think we're going to um, keep the same structure we currently have. So what's most likely going to happen is it'll be the same structure. You know, in our school, the biology students will be taking it. Um, the It is an interesting question because there are NGSS earth science standards, unlike our mm -hmm. old one where they never made an MCAS. But it's not... Earth science is sort of phased out in a lot of districts, although our district hasn't. I know several others do. Do they try to pull together an assessment committee and write an assessment for that? Well, they already have assessment writing committees for biology and for chemistry and for physics. So do they just right. utilize the existing structure? And from the conversations I've had with people who are involved in those structures, it sounds like they have a current structure from the old test. They're now going to move over and start with that same structure, but then apply it to new standards. So... My guess is that it is going to look something like the old the old test, but hitting the new standards. Mm -hmm. um, how that ends up manifesting itself will be very fascinating because the, I mean, as you know, the practices are so, like, assessing the practices is, um, is very, it looks different. Um, it, right. And, and how that, what the end up test ends up looking like, the amount of content, uh, you know, that's embedded within the standards is dramatically less, but the amount of practices has right. been ramped up. And we used to have a, with the, I think they called them science skills, or they may have actually been called practices of sciences now that I reflect it. We had this two-page practice of science thing that was after our content standards. And I can remember being in the meeting with the people at the state who said, we have decided we're not going to assess those practices. So our test for the last decade plus has only been on the content. So it's going to be a big shift. And big so, yeah. If... Yeah. So so conceptually, as I've been wrapping my head around what do the practices look like, and this is one of those things where, gosh, thank, thank goodness I teach AP because I've been struggling with the concept of practices and what do practices look like and how do you do that? I mean, I think that's sort of the joy of of having taught the AP. And I think when you talk about, you know, the BSCS leadership and, you know, variety of different groups, you know, I've been engaged with different groups who have been asking what can students do? Um, which fundamentally right. is what those practices are. Um, how do you assess that on a standardized assessment at the end of the year is going to be fascinating. And I, I got a, I did look at the California one. California has a pilot that they had put up and I went to a meeting with that when we were out in LA for, um, for the NSTA last year. And I've seen a few examples, but there's very little out there right now of what this actually looks like. Um, yeah. so 
like the claim, uh, claim evidence reasoning tool, CR, yeah. uh, those sort of, you know, uh, tools will be important. Yeah. Uh, so to help scaffold, you know, how to, uh, you know, extract material or extract uh, information from from different pieces that are that apply to science practices. Um, my favorite tool. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah. And, and for me, the thing that I've been grappling with is um, is the evidence, the concept of evidence and how important sort of the computational thinking and understanding of basic math is important to make evidentiary claims. And um, right. it's just sort of been this, you know, it's been this really sort of fascinating journey for me. And I, you know, <laughs> I think I've been, I'm like proselytizing to people about like, we need to have our students do more math. Like they have to do more math. And they're like, oh, why are we going to do more math? And I was like, because they, they ask questions like, oh, our group averages are so much better than the class average. Can we just use our group average for this? And I'm like, <laughs> No, like you can't just you can't cherry pick the data set that you like. We call, that's that's how we got phrenology. Like <laughs> that's <laughs> that's that's not how you do science. That's how you do pseudoscience. You don't go, oh, we had an expectation that the numbers were going to fit here, right. but when we looked at it in a broad set and people tried to repeat that methodology, we got much noisier data. The noisy data is the noisy data. You can't just cherry pick right. the not noisy data because it tells a better story. Um, yeah. And they don't they don't even see that that's a, they don't even see a problem with that. Like that's their instincts, especially as ninth graders, is to do that. And that tells me yes. we don't do enough with sample size and numbers and math. Um, and that's you know that that that's now pinging to me every single time I do anything with numbers. And I just uh, my students are in the midst of doing. Um, are doing the the who's the father dihybrid um, genetics cross from fast plants, and that's exactly the the conversation I was having with one of my classes. Okay. They're like, but all of so like that group over there, they have one you know green uh, green stem in their purple stems, and I'm like, okay, so in the classroom we have 59 out of 60 are purple, you know. <laughs> so what is that basically? Is that closer to 100% or is that more like 75%? Like what would this make sense for them in this number? And they're like, oh, so like we can just ignore them. No, we don't ignore them. We look at the trend in the yeah. data. We can acknowledge what the data is, but we make meaning out of the trend of the data. Um, and they're like, no, we just right. ignore group five. Let's, let's just ignore group five data so that we have 100. They want the numbers to match up and be perfect. Yeah. Was like, if you want... I think that also stems... Yeah. That stems from, uh, you know, historically doing um, science investigations where everything fits perfectly, too. Yeah. You know, so they're so used to, okay, this is what I expect and this is what I have. Done. Yeah. Um, instead of, you know, thinking further. So, it, I mean, I have the same issue. My students struggle with um, when they have to report on their data. Yeah. Uh, you know, they struggle if it doesn't fit what they expected. Or it doesn't fit their idea of you know what it should look like. They really struggle with the reporting piece. Yeah. Um, and so it was interesting. It's it's uh, interesting to see that the more good to see that the more experience they have in sort of analyzing, as you say, those numbers, right, and those those trend lines and those um, and looking at the differences. Um, really, the stronger they are at being really good scientists, you know, who ask the questions and, and, and think, uh, and use their results as a thinking component, you know, in terms of where to go next, what to do next. Yeah. Um, but it's even in, um, I teach 11th graders for the most part, 
and they 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 struggle as well. Yeah, I've been my new phrase this past week was "There's no such thing as bad data, just bad scientists." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you don't don't denigrate the data for your bad uh, experimental design. Like, <laughs> exactly. if if you can't design the experiment to to explore the phenomenon and you get these numbers, you can't then just cherry pick which ones are the the good numbers out of that. You just have to say, "Oh, we didn't do a good experiment. So how do I redesign this?" To, to better, if I think there's a phenomenon here, I need to find a better system that that expresses that phenomenon. That's like not yeah. not that, so I basically just didn't have a very good system. Either, you know, my materials weren't very good or my methodology was not very good or, or something. But the numbers are the numbers. Like you run a protocol and you get these numbers. And if the numbers aren't what you expected, it either means you don't understand the phenomena or you designed a bad experiment to model that phenomena. And that's a, I mean, right. that's, that's a big mental leap for, you know, as I said, a 14 year old to make, but I think it does reflect exactly what you said. Um, our kids have been trained to be good at school, to get right answers. And the fact right. is, is if we had all the right answers, our job would be pointless. Like there would be no science. Science yeah. is all about the fact that the, of the unknown answer, not the right answer. Right. Um, and so that's, that's the joy of science is the, is the cool discovery of new things. Um, <laughs> Yeah, All right. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what are you now looking forward to in the next couple of years? Um, you know, I think we're at a cool place where in education, where we're really uh, starting to to look at, at science, um, teaching science at a deeper level. To that, um, I always look forward to you know improving my practice and. Um, getting these students who are, you know, I see in my classroom who I know are going to make a difference. You know, they're going to be going out there and they are going to be our future scientists. Um, you know, I, I, I often say that in class. I often say to them, um, you know, you're sitting here, but someday you're going to be that, you know, uh, Nobel, Nobel laureate. You're going to be that scientist who's diving into the ocean, you know, and, and to look for something really cool. Um, and I have a little part in that, you know, in terms of getting them engaged in the excitement and that sort of thing. So I, to continuing to um, explore how to better teach this, you know, this area, you know, to teach science uh, so that we can get um, scientific, you know, science thinkers who um, are on the cutting edge, you know. Um, and, and I see it, I see it in my kids. So it, it's exciting. Um, in terms of professionally, um, I'm looking forward to being involved in teaching teachers, the things that I, um, that I know, um, have worked for me, but also are behind them, you know, and that's one of the things that I loved about BSES. And I, I know I keep saying I did love it again, life changing, <laughs> right? Uh, but one of the pieces uh, that, that I really um, appreciated is that, you know, we were sort of learning about some of the tools that are that I'm using in my classroom today. But we were also given some of like that research, background research component to it that as to why it works. You know, how does it really uh, impact the learner? You know, why is it that, that it works? The, I'm always about the why. So why yeah. does it work? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And when you um, think of so I'm looking forward to. I was going to say that you, when you said that, it makes me think of that book, uh, Make It Stick. Um, I don't know if you've yes, ever. Yes, I love that book. Yeah, yeah. but it's like exactly, 
that exact <laughs> that exact phrase that you mentioned like like yeah. even when you have instincts of I should do this and then they go and then we were in this study uh, in this cohort yeah. and we had them do this test and this group did this test this way and then these were the results so yeah I, I totally yeah. hear what you're saying in those in that make it stick uh, vein of not yeah. just not just the stuff that we do but the stuff that we do that has evidence you know research behind it and not just the anecdotal stories I think we learned as we were being right. trained yeah right because it's easy to to get you know stuck in that okay I think it works yeah instead of really looking at the uh, at the real evidence behind it so teaching adult learners um, so that we can increase uh, best practices out there you know and you're part of that yeah um, <laughs> you know like we now know a, couple, a few things right that we can bring to others who are in the same position as we are of instructing, you know, young students and really making a difference with them. It's, you know, the, the ability to multiply best practices in this manner is, it's pretty, um, you know, it's pretty impressive. And it's also, I think it's a responsibility, you know, now that I know what I know, <laughs> it's my responsibility to go out there and make sure others know about it as well. So Wow. That's what I look for. Long, long uh, answer to your to your question. Oh, that's, that one's lo not long at all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So before we get to our uh, our picks, I got a couple of last wrap up questions. Uh, when you're not teaching, what do you like to do? It doesn't sound like you have time to do anything else, like every other teacher. But uh, what do yeah. you do when you're not in the classroom or working on your curriculum? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm a homebody. I love reading. Um, I, uh, my, actually my, I have two daughters mm -hmm. year old and, uh, they informed me the other day that they think I read too much, um, uh, nonfiction <laughs> and that I need to read a little bit. I need to, you know, change it up a little bit, not a little fiction in there. So that's sort of, uh, because they see what I read and, you know, something that it's a really a regular part of my life. Um, I enjoy, um, just watching them grow watching my little girls grow and, um, you know, going to uh, recitals and comp dance competitions and uh, gymnastics competitions, um, you know, and just being with my family. Um, I'm, I'm a very, I'm very much a family, um, family girl. I just, uh, I like, um, you know, we stay local here in, in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. I live in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Uh, is because uh, family is having family close by is important to me. So it's always being hanging out with the family, doing stuff with my girls uh, and my husband. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not a TV watcher, although that's uh, I'm hoping to get a little bit more into that. But uh, <laughs> I'm not at all. I fall asleep <laughs> when I whenever I watch TV. So uh, like I said, hanging out with my family. Yeah, that's there's nothing wrong with that. There's always a, a good time that. You know, you always hear that there's only so many years with your kids and and then you like have them and it's like, wow, you blinked in there in high school. And it's like, how is he in high school already? Like, uh, how is he one of those 14 year olds that are you know, like and then the yeah. other uh, well, I'm going to have no kids in elementary school next year. Like they, I'm gonna, my boy, my boys are oh, both wow. going to be out as of next year. So it's you know, you blink and it's over, you know, like they're, they're gone. So I think enjoying them while they're there is is important. Um and then in terms of a nonfiction recommendation for you, I don't know if you like uh, Sherlock Holmes or Sherlock Holmes type mystery, uh, but last summer I read a book called The Beekeeper's Apprentice. 
and it's a oh, okay. it's a it's a fan fiction. I hate saying fan fiction because it sounds like I'm denigrating it, but it's sort of a fan fiction of a Sherlock Holmes. is based off of a a young woman who is in her late teens um, who uh, befriends an old an elderly retired Sherlock Holmes. Um, and, uh, okay. and, uh, it was a, a fascinating, uh, a fascinating read. I, I really enjoy Sherlock Holmes novels and the, the classics and, and I enjoy the, I enjoy the series Sherlock, the BBC series as well, but this was very much told, it was well done modeling who Sherlock Holmes is and all of that characters, but it was told from, uh, a, a, a female Sherlock Holmes perspective. The girl is not a, okay. yeah, it's, she's a young woman okay. who has very much sees the world in a very much like Sherlock Holmes, but from a young woman's perspective. So if you, if you like it, there's enough uh, like science and deductive reasoning built into that. So it's one of those things I like about the yeah. Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> it's like, it's, yeah, it's, it's really <laughs> nerdy fiction, but it was, it was really well written. Um, and I, they've, she's written a few books in that series. I, I don't feel like I, I feel like I run out of time. What you said about TV is that's how I am about books. I will start a book every mm-hmm. night and I'll read three pages and then out three pages. And then, like, yep. my wife, my, my wife says I'm a shark that if I stop moving, <laughs> you know, I fall, I fall asleep. <laughs> so yeah. reading involves yeah. stopping moving. So yeah, we uh, have a lot to do. Right? Yeah, we got a lot to do. We can't stop. We're busy. We have a lot to do. Yeah. All right. So last question before we get to picks. Do you have any questions for me? I've uh, got to ask all the questions I wanted. So do you have any questions for me? Yeah. I mean, so so you participated this year, right, this past summer in the Regional Teacher Academy, Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, what were some of your takeaway, takeaways from, from that week? Uh, what were the pieces that you felt inspired you and you could really take home and do at your school the next day kind of thing? So in terms of the immediate impact, um, the I think the biggest sort of impact for me was the the nature of formative assessment. And um, I think like mm-hmm. a lot of other teachers, I do I have always done a lot of check-ins. Um, oh, let's I'm gonna do this little thing and I'm gonna check in with the students. But I had not ever really built in the time to do anything with that check-in. So what that would mean is, you know, I do a little quick check-in question on the board and I would collect the information from that. And uh, I don't want to say I didn't do anything because I would, I did have a little bit of a process where if students weren't getting it wrong, would sort of pause, would do some turn and talk. I do maybe a brief instruction there, but I really had never built in formative assessment with a pause period where I collect information about where the students are and then I reshape instruction in the days following that to help students Mm -hmm you know, um, deepen, deepen, deepen their understanding in their areas of weakness as a group before they have an assessment. It was sort of a, we were doing this check-in. All right, well, if you don't get this, you want to check out this resource, this resource, and this resource. And I was offloading all of that work back to the students if they were struggling. And it was putting it completely on them to have the onus of, we've just done this check-in. If you're not getting it, you now need to do something about it, which was a cop-out. I also think there was a, when you right. do check-ins, when you don't build in time to do anything with it, there is a bias towards um, confirmational check-ins, check-ins that will help you continue to move forward at a pace. So because of that, I've actually been building in a more buffer time within my units to create the space to then do something, collect information, then rather than just sort of, it's a question in the class and then we maybe quickly go over it or the student has to do something with it. Me taking that and taking ownership of it, 
going through it, making meaning out of that, and then readdressing it with the group and telling them, all right, this is the feedback I got. These are the concepts we need to readdress. Let's let's dive deep into these couple of mm -hmm. concepts. So I think I think I'm more mindful about how I'm checking in and then I'm doing more with those check-ins since since that year. And I'd say that's sort of been, if you were to look at my practice this year and the way my classroom looks this year compared to last year, that would be the most obvious shift in those two. For me, it was also the grouping and with the format of assessments. Um, I never really thought about how important prior to, you know, going through the training, uh, how important it was for, uh, for to have groups, mm -hmm. you know, uh, that move the shifted. Because remember, I mean, when you go to BSES, you're never ever with the same group. You know, you're always uh, doing something with a different group. You're, you're moving along and it does keep you sort of as a learner a little bit more engaged. And so I have, and it, it's, it was neat to, and this year I actually have, you know, the names for the groups. Um, and I'll say, oh, let's get into our Black Island group or let's get into our, you know, Barrington group or let's get into, you know, and, and they automatically, so it really does, um, it, it keeps them really engaged and in tune in terms of what they're doing because they're never really with the same, they're all friends, mm -hmm. but they're never different people, different approaches. That was neat for me. Yeah, I, for me, I um, in the last couple of years and and before I went to the summer, I actually I've used I use popsicle sticks. I've always used popsicle sticks in my classroom to call on students there. Mm -hmm. But then I in the last few years, I've realized that they're a phenomenal randomized grouping tool. So mm -hmm. when my students are walking in, it is really common for me to be with my beaker of popsicle sticks, just literally putting four to five on every right. table. And it's completely random who they get with. So I literally shuffle them up mm -hmm. and then I'll just drop four on the tables and then I get them all face up and then I give them prompts out on the tables and then I go, all right, so here's what we're going to work on today. This is our goal. These are what we're trying to hit. Um, I've put these questions out and then I have them work in those yep. groups on various things. And I started doing that just for the same thing you said, to randomize their groups um, and it's, I feel like it's had a really positive impact on culture in my classroom. The expectation that everybody in the room has to be able to work with everybody else, even if it's only for 47 minutes of our period. Um, exactly. And so while they might have their best friend yeah. in there who they'd prefer to work with, there's a community that everyone works together. Um, and so I've, I had moved to that before. Right. So the randomized grouping thing was not, it wasn't a need for me. Like, I feel like I've already, I'd already solved that problem yeah. in a way that works we in my space. But there are many other things. I think the storyline thing that you mentioned earlier um, is a definitely a work in progress. And how does that? How do I make storylines in my school culture with my colleagues from my curriculum? Is the thing that if you hope, hopefully, if you were to check in two years from now, that will be one of those long term things. Because as you said, that's not something you snap your fingers and fix right away. Um, it right. definitely it definitely shaped the work I did through the rest of the summer as I prepped for the year. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of storyline work that needs to get done <laughs> sort of across right. them. But in, you know, three different classes that I teach and all of the different spaces that they all mean a little something different. So um, that'll be the long term shift. Right. It takes years. Yeah. All right. Uh, great. So let's get to uh, picks of the week. And you've uh, Diana, you've got a good friend uh, in the pick. So uh, tell us about your pick of the episode. <laughs> Oh, so in terms of, uh, so since we just came back from an ABT, mm -hmm. um, I attended the, uh, one of the sessions with Paul Strode uh, and Sean Carroll. 
uh, it was, uh, this, you know, Sean Carroll's The Serengeti Rules Quest to Discover How Life Works and Why It Matters. Um, I, I actually had select, I didn't know I was going to that session, but I had picked up the book two years ago in Providence. I hadn't gotten to reading the book, but I've been wanting to. So I've been, you know, because I've selected different books along the way. And so uh, I was like, I'm going to select this book to read on the plane. Um, I have one chapter left. And um, and I went to their session. So I, so I was so I was fresh. I had just read the book. I had like I said one one chapter left, and Paul Strode's uh, work um, in terms of how to use this book as an instructional tool is amazing. Um, there is a lot a lot of the things that I'm currently working in class um, with is trying to. Uh, expose kids a little bit more to the gra to graphing and tables and making meaning of data, as we talked about earlier on the show. Um, and this is like the perfect um, sort of uh, book or uh, side piece, I guess, uh, full of ideas in, in terms of how you can incorporate narratives. I mean, I love um, the elementary school teacher's approach to they read to the kids. Mm -hmm. And in his session, he talked about how he loves to read to the kids and to his students. You know, his students are, you know, high school uh, level kids and how he basically was able to extract data from the from Sean Carroll's book to to really focus in on science practices. So that is, I would say, hands down for me. My my most current. Uh, for uh, things that I want to use in my classroom. Yeah, I am. Um... So I, I spend a lot of time with Paul. Um, I don't know if you may have noticed. <laughs> Paul, I, spend, I, I feel like Paul's the, Paul and uh, Paul Strode and Ryan Rear were the other two I spent a lot of time with in uh, in, in uh, St. Louis. But um, yeah, I, uh, I I walked in that room and um, and I saw it and I was gonna sit down and I felt I felt guilty uh, because I was in there and I was looking around and I have the book um, and uh, Paul and I get along great and I know Paul and I I have the supplement saved on my computer and I was like. If I sit down in this room, I'm taking a spot yeah. from somebody else who could learn from Paul. And if I ever have a question, mm -hmm. I could just send him a text, like it really, or give him a call. Like I felt bad right. taking that room, mm -hmm. and both Paul and um, John Darko were presenting at the same time. So I made like okay. I yeah. made this gut, and I was told, and I, they, yeah, and I had told the two of them I was totally torn because they're both yeah. presenting at the same time. Like who I couldn't go to both of the sessions, but I had that moment right. where I was standing in the room. Uh, with Sean Carroll and Paul getting ready to present and I thought the room was getting packed and people were like pouring in and yes. he was handing out the books and I was like I could stay here and take a book I already have one I could get a supplement I already have it I could ask yeah. questions about the session but I could do that anytime like I'm gonna yeah. step out of this room and I'm gonna go down to John's because I genuinely wanted right. to go to both of them and I was glad that I did and I got a lot out of that session but I'm glad you picked it because um, it's a great supplement and um, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna I've got it down to two or three chapters that I think I'm going to use um, with my alternative program kids. That I, and I, I was actually talking to the special ed aide in my room about maybe doing just what you said, reading aloud to them, reading aloud excerpts, and then using some of those questions to, to open up. Because while it may not be a video phenomena, some of the things that right. are in there, like if you tell the story provide the beginning of a narrative about what this means and then you pull in some other resources you could start it by a reading of a one or two pages actually giving them a phenomena that then would open up uh well let's graph what happened let's um 
what do we predict? How is how are the interactions? You know, what's going to happen in the series of interactions based off of these? You know, the opening of this section or the opening of this chapter. Um, and sort of that's where that's where my headspace is with it. And I'm going to probably try a couple of them um, starting up in the in the spring when I get to some of those concepts with my with my kids. So. Um, I think the reading may be a little dense for them, but as you said, the, you can make it accessible at any level to people. Yeah, yeah. And um, I did the same thing that you did. I didn't take the book and I didn't take the excerpt, <laughs> the supplemental material, because it was nice. Someone else really wanted it. Yeah. And um, so, you know, and I can, uh, I've been following Paul's work for a while now uh, with Science Fair. Yeah. Um, and so, um, so I could, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting to, uh, to watch just different people present on things that you think about, but they already have it, Yeah, you know, figured out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There. And, um, it, it, that's the down. That's the downside of NABT. There's like several times where there was like two sessions. Where it's like, oh, I so want to go to this, and um, it's such a good, yeah. you know. But that's the that's the nature of all conferences. You always line things up, and there's always two or three, and you've got to make choices about them. But uh, that's great. All right. So uh, my pick. Um, yeah. I don't know if you saw this come across, um, but there was a video that came out um, just. I didn't want to say it's like just this week. Um, that it was a video of um, CRISPR editing in real time. Uh, and uh, a group posted an article in uh, Nature Communications where they actually were able to videotape uh, the CRISPR Cas9 clipping out a section of DNA. Um, and so it's a it's oh, a cool. it's it's a video and. Um, I will be completely transparent here. I have a, I understand the beginning of CRISPR and the end of CRISPR, and I know parts of the middle, but it is still one of those concepts that in terms of could I, could I feel, do I feel competent to teach CRISPR to students? The answer is no. I feel like I have a, a, a tentative grasp on this, but man, it's a cool video. Um, and uh, I, I actually was starting to read through the Nature Communications article, and I'll put a link in, in the show notes for that. Um, and I think that that's an article I'm going to sit down and spend some deeper time on to find the parts that I don't know. And I think that's sort of the place where I am in terms of my my understanding of CRISPR. I have a, a broad overview of it. I know a little bit of the stuff in in between, um, and I need to read some deeper articles to sort of challenge challenge the concepts that I have. And I so um, I thought the video was super cool, so I thought it was a cool pick. But also this article showing how they went about taking this video and and what the lessons they took out of it um, um, are sort of a cool thing that came out this week. Right. Right. That's neat. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm in the same place that you are <laughs> with that. So I'll definitely look into it. Yeah, yeah. It's a. As I was, I was telling some of my students um, last night. As I said, I was with students at a. Uh, we have a science family night where kids teach the teach science to elementary school uh, kids and their parents. It's a student communication, and we were talking. I work with a group that does synthetic biology, um, and we were talking. And one of the students had brought up the concept of CRISPR, and this other kid's like, "Well, what's CRISPR?" I was like, "Okay." So I started talking about it a little bit, and then I described. I said, "Yeah, I remember. It's. It seems like it's come on real fast." Like it went from me becoming aware of it to the kids I sent out to go on job shadowing to visit labs were coming back saying, what's CRISPR? And I had thought, all right, well, this thing's out there in the field. I'm going to have to figure out what this is in the next two to three years. And then like two months later, the kids were coming and asking me questions about what this thing was. And I was like, oh, gosh, I got to figure this out. And that was just like two years ago. And now it's kind of like everywhere. So it definitely is one of those things where um, when kids read articles about science, 
it's now embedded in a lot of the materials and methods and um, a lot of discussion about potential technologies down the road. A lot of them involve that. So, you know, as as responsible educators, we need to sort of be on top of this to know enough about it to um, <laughs> communicate at least partially knowledgeably about it. I feel like that's where I am. I can communicate a little bit about it, but I couldn't, you know, teach about it. And I don't know what goes into doing it. Um, I, I know that the in some systems it works really elegantly and it's really easy like removing genes is that but it's more complicated if you want to add genes um but i don't know why <laughs> and i don't know i don't know if anybody knows why but i i know that it's more complicated than the sort of superficial picture i have in my head so, so. no that's true and I, I mean i agree with you it's our responsibility to keep up to date with some of the and especially in biology right now where there is so many there are so many new things protocols and, um, you know, and research ideas um, around topics in science. Um, that's actually one of the things I'm, I love, and I'm going to name drop a little bit, is uh, a teacher in my district, Emmett Donegan. Um, he's like my little library question. I will, I'll, I'll go ask him, have you heard or have you read? Um, the man reads everything. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a great model for educators, you know, that uh, you really have to keep current. Yeah. Um, in, in what's going on in science because it changes quickly. You know, what we know today will be, uh, there'll be more to know uh, tomorrow. Yeah. And it's important. And it's also important to tell the kids that all the stuff in your textbook is not, you know, it's not current, yeah. you know, and there's stuff that's in there. And kids were asking me questions earlier this year and they're like, is this true? And I was like, it was when they put this book together. Um, but yeah. it's a little more complicated than that. There's now some evidence that's like, and, you know, I always use the soft language because there's now some evidence that suggests that <laughs> uh, no, right, right. because, you know, it's in, in process. But that's great. So. All right. Well, Diana, th thank you for the last minute join. Um, I <laughs> very much appreciate no it. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, it was great talking to you. It was like now we got to talk twice in a, a short period of time. We're going to have to find uh, some conference or something to go to uh, in the That's spring. That's right. We're an hour away. Yeah, we're just so. an hour away. Maybe we'll have to get you up and present at uh, the Massachusetts Association of Biology Teacher Meeting in the in the spring because we're going to be doing something. Uh, Kanufke is going to be one of our speakers. So. Um, is he really? Yeah. That's great. I think he knows that. Hopefully he knows that. Um, <laughs> well, now he knows. Yeah. Yeah. We were just talking about, uh, We were, I was just talking to the president the other day and uh, they're excited to have him up there. So uh, they were asking me about speakers and, you know, would I give a session about something? So I'm like, I got to figure out if I'm going to do something. But uh, yeah, maybe uh, we'll come bring you up. It's going to be in March. So I'll maybe send you some information about that. All right. All right. All right. Keep so, it posted. Yeah. All right. So let me give you my show notes. Um, so if you enjoy this work um, and you'd like to support uh, the the Life of the School podcast, I do have a Patreon uh, at patreon.com slash lots. Um, and if you, you know, feel this is worthwhile and want to uh, chip in, uh, you know, a buck a month or something like that, um, any dimes are welcome. We, we, I accept all of them. It helps me pay for my uh, my recording toys and uh, and that sort of thing. And uh, also, if you are a supporter, you get invited into a secret Slack channel that is populated by the likes of the Kanufkis and the Darkos and many other uh, great people who are in there. So, uh, yes, definitely support if you feel so inclined. Uh, music on this and every episode is by X Magicians and Jake Jenkins. Uh, you can get show notes on lifeofthisschool.com. 
org. And you can follow me at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. Um, I'll post episodes there and um, you can communicate with me if you have any questions or know somebody who should be a guest on Life of the School. I've been getting a few of those lately too, so that's awesome. So thank you again, Diana, and I will talk to everybody soon. All right. Thank you.